Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 17 this morning. Genesis 17, we'll start in verse 1. We'll read through verse 21. Our God is great, and that's what we've been learning in this sermon series. We have a great and glorious God. And week after week, as we learn these new words about God, we're seeing with fresh eyes his great glory. And this morning, we can trust that the Lord will reveal himself again. So Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, hear the word of our God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your, your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We need your word today. We need your word just as much as... Abraham needed your word. He needed to be built up in your word, confirmed by your word, and we need these, this very same reality in our life. Anxiety, doubt, fear, trouble, all of these things come to us. And so we need your word, and we pray this morning that you have found us upon your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So picking up the story in front of us, Abraham was boxed in once again. There was no wiggle room for him to maneuver either to the left or to the right. He was once constrained by a set of possibilities. And if you know anything about Abraham's life, this was nothing out of, out of the ordinary for him. You remember Abraham's life? This was the reoccurring theme of his life. Back in Genesis 12, the word of the Lord came to Abraham and thrust him out of his homeland and pushed him into a new land, a land filled with godless peoples. And because of that, Abraham faced impossibility after impossibility after impossibility. There was the time when Pharaoh took Sarah, Abraham's wife. And then there was the other time when Abimelech took Sarah, Abraham's wife. Wife, And if you remember those situations, Abraham tried his best to maneuver and wiggle his way out of these impossibilities. And, and he tried his hardest, but the more he maneuvered, the worse it got. And only divine intervention saved Abraham and his wife. And as we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham, though the, the circumstances are different here, is once again in an impossible situation. You see, God had promised Abraham many great things. He had promised Abraham blessings and nations and lands and kings. But all of these good things depended on this one simple matter. Abraham needed a son. In fact, to heighten the scene for you, the whole biblical storyline suspends on this very matter. Salvation for the nations, your salvation depends upon this one simple matter. Abraham having a son. So here's Abraham. He is trying to have a son, trying with all of his might, but he could not produce a son. Years passed by, decades passed by, and there was no son for Abraham. You can imagine all this trouble that this created in Abraham's mind. And so Abraham's mind ran to solutions, trying to figure out a way, trying to figure out a way to maneuver to get a son. At at one point, he's speaking with God, and and, and Abraham proposes a substitute. Maybe a pinch hitter will will solve this problem. And so he says to the Lord in Genesis 15, verse 2, that there's Eliezer of Damascus. Perhaps the promise will come through him. At another point, uh, the insisting of Abraham's wife, Sarah, Abraham takes Hagar. And this union proves fruitful. Abraham gets a son. He gets Ishmael. But if you know the story, this son doesn't produce the the longed-for blessings of God. In practical terms, what did this union create? It created envy and hate and dissension, bitter fruit that would be tasted for generations because of that decision. To make matters worse, as we come to our text, if they could get any worse... Old age had done its work. Abraham, he's 99 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. And this fact is keenly felt by both Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, in the face of the promise, as the Lord is speaking to him, says, Genesis 17, verse 7, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Abraham is saying, Lord, this is impossible. It cannot happen. And Sarah has the same sort of worry and logic in her head. Genesis 18, verse 12. In the face of the promise, she says, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And as we take in the scene, the impossibilities are stacked high. 
no child, no possibility of a child. When Sarah was young, her womb was closed, and now she is old, past the age when women can have children, and so too for Abraham. Nature and all the laws of nature shout the answer, no, this is not possible. Common sense says, no, this is not possible. But God says something different. Take note of what God says. He doesn't merely say, Abraham, you will have a son. He does say that, and he could have just said that. But God says something before that, something so important. Did you catch it in the first verse of chapter 17? The Lord comes to Abraham and he says this, I am God Almighty. And the Lord is speaking so clearly and plainly to Abraham. He is saying, Abraham, this is who I am. I am El Shaddai. I am the God who possesses all power and authority. All power and authority, they are mine. And this is the truth that the Lord seeks to drive into Abraham's heart. Sarah's heart. He says to them, Genesis 18, 14, he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything. As we reflect upon this scene, do you see what the Lord is doing? Do you see his strategy? What is the Lord doing? He is turning Abraham's eyes, Sarah's eyes, away from nature, away from their old age, away from all of their failed past attempts. He is turning them away from all of these impossibilities that they can see. And he's turning them to the only thing that matters, his power, better yet, his very name. God reveals himself. I am God Almighty. El Shaddai. And if you take the time to read the rest of the story, you should if you haven't. You know that this isn't just a bunch of filibustering by the Lord. This isn't just a bunch of talk. Our God is indeed a God of power and he overcame nature. He subdued it for the sake of of Abraham and for the sake of the promise, and he gave a son. Genesis chapter 21, verses one through two, put it like this. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to them. And so we see in Abraham's story, in Genesis chapter 17, God's power. And this is such a precious story because in this story, God reveals this particular name of his for the very first time in Holy Scripture, El Shaddai, God Almighty. And here we get our doctrine, our sentence this morning, God is omnipotent. Who is God? Our God is omnipotent. And as we think about the Scriptures and as they speak about God, this is a theme that the, that the Scriptures love to meditate on. God is revealed not only as God Almighty, but he is often called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, declaring his power over all things. He is called the Strong and Mighty One. He's often compared to a fierce warrior. So after the parting of the Red Sea, Moses took Israel and he led them in song and he taught them to sing this about the Lord. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. In Deuteronomy chapter 721, God is called a great and awesome God. In other places, in the prophets, he is called the mighty one of Israel. And he is called the mighty one of Israel because he is the God who works with irresistible power. Such a power that no man, no thing can turn back his might and his work. He is known as Yahweh of hosts throughout the scriptures, the God who commands multitudes of angel armies. He is called this God simply sometimes in the scriptures, power. 
just power. And so our God, the scriptures declare, and they love to declare it, our God is omnipotent. And so we ask this morning, in light of Abraham's story, in light of what the scriptures love to tell us about God, what does it mean for God to be omnipotent? We should be getting used to this by now. We've, we're getting used to these omni words. So we have, we've had omniscience. We've had omnipresence. And so this word, like those words, is a word that is attempting to describe God's immensity and plentitude and is trying to describe God's immensity and plentitude applied to a specific matter. And so what is the matter we're applying it to? Well, we're applying it to work and ability, power and action. And really, this word answers the simple question, what can our God do? And the answer we learn from the scriptures is this, God can do all things. Or as the Bible says, nothing is impossible for God. And this is true because there are no limits or constraints, borders or edges to God's great power. Our God is omnipotent. Now, we need to work here and try to understand God's omnipotence. And as we try to understand this great doctrine, there is one particular way that the Bible loves to speak about God's power. And I think it's very helpful. The Bible goes back to these metaphors again and again, the right hand of the Lord and the arm of the Lord. Now, as we think about the, the hand of the Lord and the arm of the Lord, we can't be confused about what the scriptures are saying. God doesn't have arms. He doesn't have hands. He doesn't have legs or a body. Our God is pure spirit, and there are no parts to him. But what the scriptures are doing here is they're accommodating their language to us so that we might understand who God is and what God is like. So the scriptures tell us about the arm and hand of the Lord. And so how are these phrases helpful? Just think about those phrases for a moment. How can you tell if a man is strong? You want to judge if a man is strong. Well, the first thing you likely will do is you will just look at that man. Does that man have any muscles to him? Does that man have any sort of mass to him? Or is he just a stick made up of bones? And specifically, you might want to look at that man's arms and his hands. Is he strong? Well, let me look at his arms. And second, you might want to consider what that man can do. So after looking at his arms and his hands, you ask, well, what can this man lift with those arms and those hands? What can this man move? What can this man carry? What can he get done with those arms and with those hands? And as we keep thinking about these phrases, we have to understand where they come from. And so they come from the ancient world where all the work that was done was manual work. When you worked, whether on the farm or in the battlefield, you worked with what? You worked with your arms and with your hands, with your legs and with your back. Life in the ancient world was a life of brute force strength. If you wanted to get something done, it would cost you physical exertion. And so everyone would have known as they heard these words applied to the Lord what they meant. God either conceiving him as a workman in a field or as a warrior on the battlefield, they would have understood this. God is incomparable in might and power and strength. No one has an arm. No one has a hand like the Lord our God. So let me just describe how God's people talked about the arm and the hand of God. So if you read your Bibles, you will find God's people boasting in the arm and in the right hand of the Lord. 
So I've already mentioned this, but you can go to that scene in Exodus chapter 15. The Lord split the sea and destroyed Pharaoh and his host and and Moses and Israel. They're there on the, the side of the sea and Moses starts leading the congregation in song and Moses teaches Israel these words. So verse six and verse 12 of Exodus 15. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them up. What does Israel do? They boast in the hand of the Lord. And what can the hand of the Lord do? Swallow armies up. And as you keep reading the scriptures, you will find God's people doing this. You will find them attributing all of their success to the arm and the hand of the Lord. God's people, if they have their heads on straight, do not attribute success to themselves or to anyone else, but to the arm and hand of the Lord. So Psalm 44, verses 1 through 3 says this. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm. So what is Israel doing? Well, they're looking at their success. Here is this land, it is ours. Why? Well, not because of our swords, not because of our might, but because of the hand and the arm of the Lord. At times in the scriptures, you will find God's people tired, You'll find them stressed and pushed to their limits. You'll find them persecuted and bent bent low. And what do they do in situations like this? Well, God's people will hope in the arm and in the hand of the Lord. For example, Psalm 63, verse 8, the psalmist says, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. What's happening for the psalmist? Everything is falling apart, but his one hope is this. The right hand of the Lord is holding him up. You will find the godly praying words like these. Psalm 60, verse 5. Give salvation by your right hand. Answer us. The psalmist sees all of the trouble, and his one hope is this. The right hand of the Lord. Save us. And then you come to passages like Psalm 74, verse 11, and you sense the urgency of how God's people prayed. They pray this, why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them? What do God's people want? They want to see the right hand of the Lord at work, not in the garment, but out displayed in mighty power, bringing salvation. And at times, you will find God's people full of joy. And so full of joy that they're spreading good news about God. They're proclaiming it. They're shouting it from the rooftops. They're heralding it. And when they herald good news, what are they talking about in the scriptures? Well, they're talking about the hand and the arm of the Lord. Listen to Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 10. These are glorious words. Isaiah says this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. 
the voice of your watchmen. They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Why? What are they singing about? Isaiah says this, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the earth shall see the salvation of God. What is the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ, our Savior? It is this, God has bared his mighty right arm, conquering death and sin and hell, and that's the truth we love and we cherish. That is the gospel, the arm of the Lord displayed in the weakness of the Son. And as we take stock of what the Bible has to say about the arm and the hand of the Lord, we begin to see the glory of God's great power. You love how the Bible works here. You want to see the power of God? Go to the Red Sea and see the sea split and see Pharaoh destroyed. You want to see the power of God? Go to the battlefield. There you will find great kings and armies. You will find great cities destroyed and overcome. You want to see the power of God? Look at men like Abraham and Moses and David and see their lives preserved from every harm. Do you want to see God's power? Well, look at the gospel. See the bare arm of the Lord conquering sin and death and hell. And so we're surveying the Bible's testimony to God's power. God's power is so great and it's so good. But here we need to get specific and we need to think deeper. What does it mean for God to be omnipotent? We've listened to the Bible, and we've gone all over the Old Testament, and we've looked at the gospel, and we see God's power, but what does it mean for God to be omnipotent? And I want to give you four statements this morning to help clarify God's omnipotence for you. And so when we talk about God's omnipotence, we first of all mean no difficulty. There is no difficulty for the Lord. It has been said, and I think rightly so, that it is no harder for God to create the world and all that is in the world as it is for him to create a pebble. So just picture that in your mind. You're at the beach or you're just walking along the road and you pick up the the smallest, littlest rock you can find, this pebble. And then you think about the world and all of its complexity and do this reasoning. God created this and it's just as easy for God to create a pebble See, this pebble, God can make it so small, so easy, and it's the same thing for God to create the world. And this is where God is so unlike us. There are tasks which are easier for us as humans and tasks which are harder for us. There are tasks that stretch us and make us grunt. There are tasks that are too difficult for us. We just wave our hands and surrender in front of them. But this is not so for God. God can do all things. He can do all things. Nothing is impossible for God. And not only that, he does all things without strain or any difficulty. Just think about it. God created the world, and how did he do that? He did it by simply speaking. No sweat, no burnt calories. God spoke, and it was. And think about the world. God upholds the universe, and how does he do it? He does it by his word, Again, no sweat, no burnt calories. He speaks and things continue to be. That is how our God is. There is no difficulty with his power. He wills and it is. And Jesus gets to the heart of the matter when he says this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. With God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. So no difficulty. We can add a second statement No weariness. No weariness. And so think about your life. After a long day of work, what happens to you? You get tired. 
If you're doing physical work, your body hurts and your muscles ache. If you're doing mental work, your mind cramps up, it goes numb. And what must you do before you can go back to work and do all of those activities again? You need to rest, you need to sleep, you need to eat. Why? Well, the truth is this, we derive our strength from other resources. We are not internally, self-sufficiently strong. We work, we work, we work, and we get weaker and weaker and weaker, and then we need to rest, and we get built back up, and then we can work again. But this is not with God. God is self-sufficient and perfectly independent, and because he is perfectly independent, he never tires, he never gets weary, he never has to stop to take a break or recuperate, he never has to grab a granola bar for a boost of energy, he never has to take a nap to get rested up so that he might be strong again. He is perfectly always strong. He never gets tired. The scriptures love to speak about it. For example, Isaiah 40, verse 28. Isaiah reasons with Israel. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint. He does not grow weary. He can't. It's impossible for our God to get weary. So no difficulty no weariness, we can add a third statement, no refusal. And so every day we come up against our limits. We are always exerting our power or trying to exert our power over different areas of life. But what happens? We are often refused. Whatever we're trying to exert our power over says no to us. Think about the farmer. The farmer goes and he's He's working his fields. He plows them. He plants them. But no matter what he does, he always meets refusal. There's always these thorns and thistles coming up again, no matter what he does. Or think about the athlete. The athlete is training, and the athlete wants to train to jump high. But what does the athlete meet? The athlete meets this force called gravity. And gravity, every day, every moment, refuses the athlete. Gravity says, no. You're not going to go any further. I don't care how hard you try. Or think about a teacher. A teacher's goal is to teach students, impart wisdom and knowledge to them. But a teacher invariably runs up against a student who is stubborn and insolent and refuses knowledge and wisdom. But here's the thing about our God. No one, no thing, no entity can refuse the power of God or stand up against him or say no to him. For example, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6, Jehoshaphat is praying to the Lord, and Jehoshaphat prays this, O Lord, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of nations. In your hand are power and might. And Jehoshaphat draws this conclusion, so that none is able to withstand you. Not one. That's what it means for God to be omnipotent. Psalm 115, verse 3, extols the power of God. The psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Whatever our God pleases, that is which is done. He wants it, it's done. He wills it, it's done. The Puritan George Swinock, meditating on the scripture, says this. God never contends without prevailing, and he never fights without conquering. Stephen Charnock, another Puritan, chimes in. He says, God's power can neither be checked, restricted, nor frustrated by the creature. God is omnipotent. No one can refuse him. 
And this brings us to our last statement. No contradiction. No contradiction. And so some like to propose when God's omnipotence is on the table and being discussed, all sorts of mind twisters. Perhaps you've heard these before. Someone comes to you and they say, could God create a rock so heavy that even he couldn't lift it? You sit there and you're trying to piece that together in your head. And so God could create a rock and it's so heavy that he himself couldn't lift it. Or they say something like this, could God through his great power create a secret so impenetrable that even he couldn't know it? And so you're trying to think that through in your head. Well, God's powerful and he's creating this secret. Can I... And sometimes these mind twisters catch us off guard, and we, knew, we know intuitively that something is not right here. Even though we might not know what to say to that person who is saying these things to us, we're thinking in our heads, this is just not my God. That's not how he works. That's not, that's not who he is. So how do we respond to that? Well, we have to remember this. Our God is simple. And because our God is simple, there is no contradiction in him. There can't be any contradiction in him. Think about it like this. God's power is not some brute, raw, untamed, wild power. Rather, his power is a wise power. His power is a holy power. His power is a righteous power. His power is a knowledgeable power. We could say this. His omnipotence is his omniscience, is his whatever else you want to say about God, his wisdom, his holiness, his righteousness. All of God is God. And so when we think about God's power, we cannot think of any contradictions in him. There are no contradictions. So we have these statements, no difficulty, no weariness, no refusal, no contradictions. And these statements help us understand what it means for God to be omnipotent. But here I want to go personal. We've listened to the scriptures We've talked about the arm and right hand of the Lord. We've talked about these statements. But what does omnipotence mean for you? What does it mean for you? And here we need to go back to Abraham's story. And we need to think about it. Because I think here we find application. Do you remember what God did to Abraham? Let me put it like this. God intentionally hemmed Abraham in. We could say it like this, God sent Abraham down a dead-end road, and God wanted him to go down this dead-end road. Strategically, God cut off every single hope from Abraham's life. He cut off nature. You're 99 years old. Your wife is 90 years old. He cut off Ishmael. The promise won't come through this son. And God does this not because he's cruel or mean, but because he loved Abraham He led Abraham down this dead-end. Why? So that Abraham might know this treasure. God is almighty. That Abraham might not just know it intellectually, but Abraham would love it. Now, as we take in the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, we have a choice to make. And here is the choice. Is this a bug or is this a feature? Is this a bug or is this a feature? Is this a one-off occurrence or is this how God normally works with his people? How might we answer that question? Well, I just want to mull over some Bible stories with you to get an answer. What did God do with the people of Israel? So think about the Exodus story. Do you remember what happened? So the Exodus is happening, and what does God do right away? He leads them to the edge of the sea. He directs them right there, and then what happens next? Pharaoh gets jealous, and he turns, and he pursues them, and he's right behind them. What does this mean for Israel? It means they're trapped. 
The sea is right there. Pharaoh and his hosts are behind them. They've got nowhere to go, nowhere to run. Why? Because God wanted to show them his power over all things. And it wasn't until Israel grasped the impossibility of their situation that God opened up the sea and they walked through on dry ground. Another example. What did God do with David? Do you remember David? He was a fugitive. Saul was hunting for his life, wanting to kill him. And, and so after a while of running, David found some, some rest in a small town called, called Ziklag. Do you remember that place? And Abraham and his men go off. They're going off raiding another village. And while David and his men are gone, what happens? The Amalekites come and they take everything. They take David's wives and children and they take all of his men's wives and children. Nothing is left. And the saying proves true for David, from the frying pan into the fire. Was this an accident? Why did God do this? Well, God did this so that David might know the strength and power of God. And David knew it. Why? Because he strengthened his hand in God. Or think about the 12 disciples. Do you remember them? They're on the, the water. They're in a boat with Jesus. They're making their way across. And a storm comes up, and it's a mighty storm. The boat's almost sunk. And it isn't until they despair of their lives and all hope that Jesus wakes up and rescues them, calming the storm in the sea. And we ask, well, why is God doing this? He could have just prevented that storm from happening in the first place. He could have said, no storm, and they could have just crossed without any problem. Why did this happen? It happened for this reason, that they might know and see the power of Jesus over all things, that Jesus is El Shaddai. Or think about the story of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Do you remember that story? Jesus hears the news about his friend Lazarus. Lazarus dies, and Jesus still tarries. Lazarus is in the grave for four days. And Martha and Mary are concerned. They're asking why. It's not until all after this happens that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Why? So that they might see the power and glory of God. Or think about Paul. What did God do with Paul? Do you remember Paul? He ran up against countless troubles and persecutions. Why? Well, Paul explains with his own words, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death itself. That's Paul's life. That's his ministry. Why, Paul? Paul answers, he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. But on the God who raises the dead. So should we take away from this little survey of the Bible? We should understand this principle, when, not if. When, not if. This is God's normal way of dealing with his people. He leads his people on purpose down dead end roads. He clamps his people in the vice. And we have to be clear that this looks different for all of God's people. Think about Abraham. It was childlessness. For Israel, it was a sea and a pursuing army. For David, it was Saul and Amalekites. For the disciples, it was a raging storm. For Paul, it was his ministry to the churches of God. And for you, it will likely be something completely different. 
Maybe for you it'll be something like old age and all of the suffering and troubles that come with old age as you stare down death. Maybe for you it'll be a set of difficult relationships that you cannot escape no matter how hard you try. Maybe for you it'll be a bitter attack of an enemy who just keeps coming after you and doesn't stop. Maybe for you it'll be some sort of strife in your family that there doesn't seem to be a fix for it. Maybe for you it'll be arthritis and constant pain that never leaves you. But we can be sure of this, whatever it is, God leads us down dead-end roads. God clamps us in the vice, not because he hates us, not because he is mean, but because he is doing something for us. Like with Abraham, he is leading us away from our own strength, our own resources, our own impossibilities to himself that we might see and know and love God Almighty. And when we understand this, this should make all the difference in our lives. In fact, we should more strongly word that this must make all of the difference. So I want to close with a, a quote this morning. So in my study of God's power, I was reading an old Dutch theologian, his name's Petrus van Maastricht, and he spends in his big theology book, 20 or so pages, talking about God's power, defining it, explaining it, defending it against opponents. And after he does all of this doctrinal work and exegesis, looking at the scriptures and, and drawing out the implications, he turns to application, and he writes something so simple, and I want to give it to you, because I think it's the, the conclusion we should draw as well. Maastricht says this, for this reason, we will be first more prompt to give thanks in favorable circumstances, second, more patient in adverse circumstances, and third, more confident in whatever future event, whether it be favorable or adverse. If we really see and know and love God's power, it should make all the difference. When things are going well, we should be praising God, giving thanks, promptly so. When things are going terribly, the worst we could imagine, we should learn to be patient. And when we look at the future and we don't know what's going to happen, good or bad, we don't know. We're confident. Why? Because we, we see and we know and we love God Almighty. And so we can be prompt to give thanks. Why? Because our God is God Almighty. We can be patient in adverse circumstances. Why? Because our God is God Almighty. And we can be confident in the future, whatever the future holds for us, good or bad, evil, or great things, because our God is God Almighty. And so let's go and ask the Lord for such things this morning. Oh, Father, we're so thankful that you are God Almighty. That's who you are. And we're so thankful that we belong to you in Jesus. And Father, we want this doctrine to make all the difference in our lives. So show us, teach us your power. Cause our hearts to love and hunger for your power. And would these practical results be there? Would we be prompt to give thanks and patient even more, would we be a people known for our confidence because we know who you are and who you are for us? Would you do this, we pray in Jesus' name.